Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, steps to stomp out risk aversion in the federal government, and GSA raises the roof on one of its most popular contracts. It's Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Defense Department's new award for research, development, testing, and evaluation of military-related technology could be worth up to $10.6 billion. The base of the contract, Pentagon awarded to the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratories, $4.4 billion. The work includes submarines, missile defense, and space systems and engineering. The Transportation Security Agency will recompete three technology blanket purchase agreements. The three contracts could be worth up to $470 million. The contracts cover enterprise support, human capital, and digital services and workflow collaboration. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Voting's open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. You can vote for your choices till September 30th. We announced the 2022 winners November 3rd. You can find a link to see the finalists and place your votes in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A new draft of the Artificial Intelligence Risk Management Frameworks out from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. A NIST spokesperson tells FedScoop the draft includes more detail on developing trustworthy and responsible AI systems. Rafael Boris is President Chief Executive Officer of the Homeland Security and Defense Business Council. He's former Undersecretary for Management at the Department of Homeland Security. Rafael, welcome. It's good to see you again. The AI part of this will cover with AI experts. Uh, you're a risk management expert, and I wonder what you see in this framework that either is uh, good or could use some improvement regarding the development of risk management frameworks more broadly across government. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me again. It's great to be with you. You know, I, I think this is a, a, an important development uh, in the context of risk management, uh, particularly, at, and, and no, I, you, you, you certainly don't want me opining on artificial intelligence uh, or the underlying technologies. Uh, but I will say this, you know, this in, in terms of incorporating sort of the socio aspect of this, the behavioral social aspect of AI in their risk management. I think it's a very important development in recognizing both the power of, the utility of, uh, of uh, uh, the risk management framework and expanding its notion beyond just uh, sort of debits and credits, uh, which oftentimes we get lost in sort of the CFO view of risk management. So I think this is an important acknowledgement that it's an important tool uh, uh, that can be adapted to many different uses. And even if something is, is novel, as interesting as artificial intelligence, risk management has a place. I quote my colleague Dave Nitschapier on fedscoop.com. The National Institute of Standards and Technology re- released an expanded second draft of its AI risk management framework. Should risk management frameworks by and large be living documents that are constantly updated, examined, and, and revised? Absolutely. The by you know by its very nature, it's a dynamic document. Uh, <clears throat> this is not uh, the kind of process where you do it one time, put it on the shelf, and refer to it when you need to when you're pr- pr- you know producing your new budget. Uh, this is a living document. This is a guide on how to assess, govern, 
integrate, identify, mitigate the risk inherent in any organizational activity. So this is uh, something that you should be living with on a constant basis. You pointed out before we turn the recorder on, Raphael, that 12 years ago or so, you were DHS. Our first conversation was then. I was at the radio station and you were talking to me about implementing the risk management concept at DHS. Here we are, and, and you pointed out, here we are 12 years later. This concept still seems to be in its nascent phases in the federal government. What has been the holdup, do you think, to more widespread adaptation of just the concept of risk management um, more broadly? I think that's a, an important conversation to have. <clears throat> I think most people will accept that risk management is here. It's here to stay. It's part of the way we do business. However, has it truly become a critical part of decision-making, our decision-making process. So let's step back for a moment. When I and many, many others were talking about enterprise risk management 10, 12, 15 years ago, we were basically looking at the private sector, the application of risk management in both resource allocation, in understanding risks, uh, in mitigating that risk, uh, in the prioritization of activities, all of these concepts is what myself and many others were, were talking about bringing into the federal government space. Curiously enough, when I left DHS and I went to work internationally, uh, uh, and I also became an evangelist, if you will, for risk management, I picked up something very interesting in terms of feedback uh, uh, from my international clients that I think has a bearing on, on uh, you know, what's holding us back. And many of my international clients said, you know, if I go through this process as you and the literature des describes, identify sort of what's important, what the priorities are, uh, I should, you know, align my resources along that and my tools for mitigation. And suppose if I'm wrong, I don't want to be held responsible for making the wrong bet. And, you know, I thought that was a really interesting insight uh, and I think it's a underexplored area where we haven't empowered people uh, basically to, uh, to take ownership of it. If you look at the, the recent surveys that were done by a firm, uh, uh, most recently 2021, uh, which a, took a look at the implementation of risk management, where it sits in the organization, who's responsible, uh, you know, it's still not at the right level in the organization. Most risk management organizations have five or less people involved. What does that tell me? That tells me that they haven't integrated into their overall enterprise way of doing business. I'll use an analogy in policing. Community policing, which has been a concept that's been around for 50 plus years, but there are still police organizations that identify a half a dozen, a dozen police officers, call them community policing engagement officers, set them apart from the regular policing organization and expect the organization totally to be a community-oriented policing organization. You know, to me, it's the same thing with enterprise risk management. If you isolate it, if you put it at the wrong level, if you align it solely with, for example, the CFO, and I'm, I'm a big champion of CFOs. I had one of the great CFOs in federal government, Peggy Sherry, 
Uh, but that limits its application. So where have you placed it? Who does it report to? Is senior leadership bought in and challenging and pushing the organization to adhere to a risk management framework? These are the things uh, that I think are still in progress. All right. To your point about the aversion to what if I'm wrong, I don't want to make the wrong bet. I can see that even being exponentially higher of a point of resistance in the federal government, knowing what we know about the risk aversion in the federal government. How would one potentially go about convincing someone or some unit, some organization, that it is better to take a wrong bet than no bet at all? Well, you know, you're, you're, you're exactly right, because in the absence of a framework, whether it's a risk management framework or anyway, you're, you're placing no bets. You're basically saying, let me wait and see what may occur and I'll respond to it as it occurs. Uh, rather than being proactive, I know I'm using very simple language here, being proactive, doing the work to be able to identify uh, the potential risk to your organization, whether it's operational risk, financial risk, uh, uh, employee risk, where, where do I have the risk of employees uh, perhaps leaving the organization? And what does that require me to do to mitigate the, tr the, the tragic impact of massive numbers of employees leaving? You see, Francis, there are so many areas where you can apply this thinking to, and I applaud NIST for providing, for, for, uh, for placing this framework in place for something as even as technologically uh, uh, challenging uh, and important in the evolution of our organizations as artificial intelligence. So, uh, you know, uh, we need to not limit our thinking as to how we could apply it. And in terms of that risk about being wrong, uh, you know, first of all, it should never be the responsibility of a person to be able to do this. If you do this right, it's an organizational effort to be able to identify risk, to be able to put together the mitigation plans. So we have to step away from that. You know, who's the one person we're going to blame? if we identified the wrong risk. No, it's, is the organization prepared? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's like FEMA, you know, the great work that they do in terms of national preparedness. Uh, you know, it's, it's, they're placing bets. Uh, they look at weather forecasts, they make some determinations about where hurricanes, for example, may and the level of activity. And we hope they're wrong in some cases. Uh, they're, they're, they're projecting a, a, a bigger than or a greater than average active uh, uh, hurricane season this year. We haven't seen much of it. You know, that's a good thing. But guess what? They're prepared. They took the best available evidence, did their due diligence, and have planned accordingly for that potential worst case scenario. Raphael Boris, it's great to have you on the program again. Thanks very much for your insight. Thanks for having me. You can read more about the NIST AI Risk Management Framework in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. The 2022 edition of Fed Talks is tomorrow. The DOD CIO John Sherman and the DHS CIO Eric Heisen are just two of the high-level leaders in government and industry you'll find there. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and sign up in today's show notes at the Daily Scoop Podcast. 
The General Services Administration will raise the roof on the Alliant 2 contract. The vehicle's new ceiling will be $75 billion instead of the old top of $50 billion. Roger Waldron's president of the Coalition for Government Procurement. He's former acting deputy chief acquisition officer at GSA. Roger, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Um, what's the significance in your view that GSA, they're developing Alliant 3, we're, we're already in the process of that. What's the significance of raising this lid on Alliant 2 in your view? Welcome. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, uh, uh, Francis. And I love the term raising the roof because <laughs> they really are. They're adding a couple stories there, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, it's significant. I guess the, the watchword for me is uh, continuity. You know, and especially if you look through their justification, um, you know, this is a strategic contract vehicle for government IT operations. And, you know, a lot of what's going on here is a lot of cybersecurity work is being, as they note in their JNA, a lot of cybersecurity work is being done through this contract vehicle, as well as a lot of uh, work related to COVID-19 and the pandemic response. And that kind of work is obviously enduring and going to continue and by increasing, you know, the the ceiling, it provides the continuity and the flexibility for the government customer, you know, on behalf of the American people, and for industry to do the business of government. Laura Stanton was on the uh, this program a month or so ago, I'm going to guess, and she talked about Alliant Two, where Alliant Three stands, and uh, my colleague Dave Nitschpier quotes her as saying. Alliant 2's, he writes, uh, Alliant 2's success sped up the timeline for Alliant 3, said Laura Stanton. And here's the quote. This increase, combined with the team's efforts on Alliant 3, should signal loud and clear to our customers and industry partners we're committed to ensuring the Alliant program remains the contract of choice for federal IT well into the future. Do you think they're achieving what they're trying to, what Laura says they're trying to achieve, Roger? Well, I think this is the first step in that process, right? So they've Increase the ceiling to $25 billion based on, the again, the JNA, taking a look at it. Uh, they estimated about $11 billion a year um, is being obligated on the contract. So they've got a, another, let's say, three years, maybe, if they're, put, you know, if they're potentially grace period to reach the $75 billion ceiling. So they... And, and I know they are, and they have announced it, and, you know, um, and, and we're aware of it that, that, you know, they're working on Alliant 3. Um, so doing those two things, you know, step one, and now continuing to focus on step two and the acquisition planning for Alliant 3 is vital. Um, and it's, and, you know, I know industry is very supportive of their efforts. Uh, if that's the first step, this, this increase in Alliant 2, what are the next couple of steps? Um, at their market research, looking at and structuring the the Alliant Three contract vehicle, reaching out to industry, getting feedback on, you know, what it should look like in the future. Um, you know, identifying lessons learned from the current vehicle, which I think one of them would be increasing the contract ceiling um, significantly. Uh, because the other thing I think I didn't mention, I think inflation had something to do with this as well. It's at a certain point. Um, between that and COVID and the cybersecurity, um, you know, and it's just a very successful contract vehicle. I, and I think some of the lessons learned here for GSA generally is, uh, you know, that, you know, you don't need to fix what isn't broken. So for example, lessons learned from this could translate over to Oasis, you know, and how Oasis is structured, Oasis Plus moving forward. We don't want that to turn into just another schedule with, you know, thousands of contractors on it. 
um, where you know the previous Oasis and Alliant demonstrate there's room for these type of vehicles and they're extremely popular. All right, what has to happen to make sure, what are the lessons learned and how would you like to see GSA implement them to avoid what you just described? Um, you know, I think, I think the first to identify lessons learned is, is both to talk to their customers about what improvements can be made, um, to talk to industry about, you know, the process and the evaluation criteria. Uh, obviously a lesson learned is increasing the, um, um, you know, the contract ceiling and, you know, fundamentally ensuring, continuing to ensure the contract vehicle is flexible and can co- incorporate new technologies and capabilities um, seamlessly um, as the market changes and you want to bring greater capability um, to the federal customer uh, to meet those needs. Um, those are just some of the things. Um, I mean, obviously, it's been a very well-run contract vehicle, and I, you know, and we're talking about potentially some tweaks here and there. But you know, again, there it's fundamentally a sound vehicle, very popular, and you should build on those strengths. What are the right questions that GSA should ask in that uh, market research, Roger? Um, if I, you know, I want to understand where technology is going to be to the extent you can over the next five to ten years, right? How can we leverage that capability? How can we at least make sure the contract vehicle can capture and incorporate? new technologies and new capabilities, whether it's AI, you know, machine learning, all the things that are coming online, data management is, you know, fundamentally critical to uh, successful organizations these days in the government. And I think the government is way behind on that. And there's opportunities there to improve the overall management and function of government through, you know, through, through enhanced data, you know, management and, uh, processing capabilities. I think some of those are some of the things, but it's the big picture is, you know, where's industry and where's a commercial and where's innovation coming from and where is it going and how do we make sure we're on the same, you know, path and destination. All right. You tipped me before this conversation today, you mentioned inflation a minute ago, Roger, and you tipped me before this conversation that inflation is uh, proving to be a challenge all across all of these schedule, uh, all of the all across all these vehicles, and you pointed out the multiple award schedules in particular. What's the issue there, and how's what you're seeing there different than what you're seeing with Alliant Two? Thanks, Francis. Uh, so, you know, we see with Alliant the flexibility increasing. You know, the the, you know, the ceiling to address customer needs and to make sure the customer has access to, you know, the, to the IT capabilities that it needs, you know, and the schedules program, um, again, there's sort of a two-step process. The policy folks have issued a lot of flexibility with regard to processing economic price adjustments in response to, you know, inflation we haven't seen for 40 years, you know, when I was in high school, <laughs> frankly, in college, early college. Don't date uh, yourself, Roger. Everybody yeah, yeah, thought you were 35 years old. Yeah, well, I, I wish. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so they granted flexibilities, but what I hear from industry and GSA's partners is those flexibilities aren't being leveraged to bring, you know, to be able to accommodate and address price increases that are, you know, are throughout the market. So you have, and then particularly small businesses are being hurt because, 
you know, I hear from companies all the time, I can't sell on my schedule contract because my, my cost of acquisition is higher than the schedule price I have. So if I sell it, I'm going to lose money on each and every transaction. There's literally been tens of thousands of transactions and orders canceled on the schedules by contractors because you know it, it would the viability um, in meeting those it's an ex- existential threat. Um, so the policy folks have taken the necessary steps um, by providing some great flexibilities to the contracting operational folks, but it hasn't followed through at the level, um, in, in the, in, in, with the urgency and the customer focus and cause industry is a customer as well that you would hope, um, you know, companies are telling me they are, it, they're still waiting months to get price increases when prices almost increase on a weekly basis. It's a big issue, um, you know, that, you know, again, we, you know, we have communicated to GSA and we'll continue to do so. Is there potentially a problem too, with the possibility that we've seen inflation really, really peak over the last yes. six months in particular, the business media that I follow seems to indicate a lot of people at least think that inflation will slow. It probably never go back to 2% the way that it was before, but it will slow. And it strikes me, this could be a case where government is so far behind that by the time they catch up, inflation's not as big a problem. I mean, there's there's yeah. potential churn, there's lurching here that makes the situation even worse than it already is. Yeah, I, that's a great point, Francis. Because to your you know, if you're months behind in you know addre- addressing prices, do you ever get caught up? Yeah. And then you get to a point in the economy, it's like, oh, inflation is not is no longer as high as it was. There doesn't seem to be quite the you know, demand or, um, urgency to it. So you even, you know, take the, you know, you, you're less focused on trying to address the pricing and you just don't ever get caught up. Um, you know, and, and, you know, there's a lots of focus on the defense industrial base on supporting small businesses, especially this administration. And here's an opportunity to do that, to help ensure access to the market but for small businesses and and to provide an enhanced competition at the end of the day by having more choice and you know without addressing this on the schedules program you know you're going to be impact negatively impacting the thousands of small businesses who have schedules and you're already I hear that from companies already um, as well as large businesses as well who do support small businesses. Um, so it's, it's, uh, you know, not a win, win, win right now. Roger, thanks very much for coming on. And, uh, hopefully the next time you're on, we've got some wins to discuss. Uh, well, I, I tell you, uh, the Alliance two is a win, Francis. It's a great win. And, um, uh, for GSA, um, and, you know, and the, their next steps, I think they've taken a great first step by increasing the ceiling. The next step is to address Alliant 3 and move forward. All right, more wins then. We'll, yes. we'll root for that? more wins next time, Roger. Thanks okay. very much. <laughs> All right, thanks, Francis. You can read more about the Alliant 2 increase in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. 
The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.